Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist Church here in Rocky Top, Tennessee. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Today, we're actually going to complete a journey that we started some time ago as we were going through the book of Acts. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. The book of Acts comes right after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it takes a while to go through this, but today we will finish and really kind of finish a whole series that we've been looking at of a church reborn here at First Baptist, really trying to revitalize our church, have a presence for the kingdom of God here in our community, and minister to people here locally, and just pray and trust that God will expand that ministry here and throughout the world. I love thinking about the certain things that happen in history, especially just things that maybe are, can be a little lighthearted to think about sometimes. And in 1977, the first Star Wars movie was released across the world. Most everyone here, even if you have no interest in the movies, you are familiar with them. The film dazzled audiences with, at the time, its stunning special effects, its amazing sound, and its brilliant orchestra. The film was unique in almost every way. It was one of the first films to be released that dealt with war and conflict after the Vietnam War in a very distinctive way, and it introduced classic characters that, though from a different galaxy, had a strange and eerie resemblance to what the world was encountering at the time. Now, many moviegoers didn't think that Star Wars could get any better, but in 1980, the sequel, known as The Empire Strikes Back, was released. It had better special effects, more emotional moments with the characters, and one of the biggest reveals in all of cinema history, the sinister Darth Vader, who was the main villain and antagonist in the movie, with his black mechanical mask and spooky breathing apparatus, wasn't just a run-of-the-mill bad guy. He was actually the father to the main hero, Luke Skywalker. And at that moment, the story of the movie was no longer about intergalactic series of battles. It was a story of redemption. How was Luke Skywalker going to save his father, who had drifted and lived such a dark life? This sequel, The Empire Strikes Back, is considered the greatest sequel of all time to many folks and one of the greatest films that came out during the 1980s. Now, we don't often think this way, but the Bible, too, in a much more profound way, contains stories that end with a sort of to-be-continued conclusion. The study we've had for several months that I've already mentioned, which we're concluding today, is one such story. It's a three-part story that began with the Gospel of Luke. Luke, who authored Acts and the Gospel that bears his name, begins with that very Gospel, the Gospel of Luke. The story that you have in your laps, in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, you have Luke, a masterfully written, detailed epic that tells the story of the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives it from a Gentile or a non-Jewish perspective. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us how the message of Jesus Christ began in a small, obscure town known as Bethlehem, and eventually how Jesus goes to the center of the Jewish world, which is Jerusalem. And Acts, that we've spent so much time studying, is the great sequel to this story of Luke's gospel. And it's in the book of Acts where we see how the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, makes it from the center of the Jewish world in Jerusalem to the center of the entire world in Rome. 
The Apostle Paul has largely been the central character for much of the book of Acts after his transformation to follow Christ on the road to Damascus. And you might remember from our last message in Acts 27 that Paul, Luke, and a shipload of 276 passengers and prisoners have shipwrecked on a small island in the Mediterranean Sea called Malta. Now, despite their turmoil and the trouble that they've experienced for weeks at sea, God had a plan in mind, and he miraculously saved Paul and everyone else on the ship. And it's now going to be revealed in Acts 28 what God's divine providence was in this amazing survival story. And that's where we'll start today. Acts 28, beginning in verse 1, we're going to start and read verses 1 through 6. Luke writes, After we were brought safely through... We then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw that no misfortune came to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. You know, I wanted us to begin with the opening section of Acts 28. As we have these survivors from the shipwreck, finding their footing on this island called Malta. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, but certainly there were experienced sailors on this grain ship that was going to Italy there that had originated in Egypt, and they certainly knew the island of Malta, but they had been completely disoriented in this storm, and they had landed on a different side of the island. Almost all of the traffic to Malta came through the main port, on one side of the island, and they had shipwrecked on the opposite side. And Luke records that the people of Malta made them feel welcomed, and they comforted them. And no doubt, after such a turbulent and violent experience in which death had seemed almost certain, Luke was definitely writing as someone who experienced this difficulty and was grateful for the kindness of these people. And so they built this fire to warm them. It was cold and it was wet. And yet this simple act of kindness through the hospitality of the fire warned them. Malta's name actually could mean refuge, or in another language it actually means honey, sweet like honey. In any case, both of these terms kind of fitting of a sweet and fitting refuge for these people after such a long and tumultuous time. And even as we're, they're building the fire, we see the great Apostle Paul gathering wood for the fire. There were probably scores of other people among the 276 passengers that were equally capable of doing this and with a crew that was more suited for this job. But Paul, with his servant heart, was always working and his service and his love was always evident. And I wonder, as Paul was doing this simple task, just walking around there on this island, picking up these pieces of wood and throwing them into the fire, I often wonder if he had any sense of the historical impact, of the great eternal impact even, that he would make and was making for the Lord Jesus Christ. Reading about Paul, reading his letters that contain and take up so much of the New Testament, 
He certainly seemed to think so little of himself, never exalting himself over others. And certainly in all of history, there doesn't seem to be someone as gifted as the Apostle Paul, this brilliant, tenacious man commanding the attention of countless people with a deep, deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And here he is, the Apostle Paul, gathering wood, picking up sticks, helping out with the basic work, the man who God used to change the world and affect the eternity of countless souls was helping build a meager fire with other prisoners. But then something unfortunate happens. A viper, a snake obviously, comes out of the fire because of the heat and latches on to Paul's hand. It fastens onto his hand. Now it just didn't nibble on Paul. Luke records that it fastened on his hand. Clearly, a scary moment for everyone who was staring around watching this happen. And we have to wonder, at least I do, what Paul's breaking point was. He had been imprisoned, shifting from trial to trial. He had spent days and days on a storm-tossed ship. He was shipwrecked on an unfamiliar part of an island. And just when it seemed things might be improving, a viper latches on to his hand. But Paul held strong, true, and fast. He didn't yell, why, God, I can't take any more of this. Or can't you see I'm serving you? Paul's reaction seemed calm and unconcerned even. He shook off the creature into the fire. But you know, that didn't stop some of these onlookers from having their thoughts. It never does, does it? They said, this man is a murderer. Justice will not allow him to live. And you may notice there that the word justice is probably capitalized. These natives were convinced that justice had finally caught up with this prisoner, Paul. Remember, they're viewing him as a prisoner. And justice here is actually a reference to the Greek goddess of justice, Daki. These natives, knowing that Paul was a prisoner, assumed that he had committed a great crime and the goddess of justice would not prevent Paul to escape unpunished. And so once again, Paul is protected by God. The promise that Paul would go to Rome was still there, that Paul would go and bear witness to Christ in Rome, but Paul wasn't in Rome yet, and nothing would stop God's promise from being fulfilled. And you know, this brings up an important reality for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, at least the thoughts of these native Maltese people do. We use a lot of appropriate and majestic words to describe God, loving, full of grace, full of mercy, truth, God who is kind, who is patient, who is compassionate. And all of these are true, and we ought to describe God in these biblical ways. But one we don't often say or think of is that the God of the Bible is a God of justice. God is holy. Sin must be punished. There must be justice. Even the natives here at Malta had this intrinsic sense when they saw Paul bitten by the snake. They thought he must have done something, something heinous and bad, and now 
he is being punished. He must be a murderer, they said. But here's the rub, and I wonder what Paul thought. Paul actually was a murderer. He had stood by Stephen as he had been stoned. He had stood by and was at least partially responsible for the deaths of other Christians before his transformation on the road to Damascus. Paul very well could have wondered, is this it? Is this my punishment for my actions? And I find that many people wonder similar things. Will God love me considering all that I have done? Will he love me because of my past? Will God love me despite the doubts and the struggles that I have? Will God accept me with all my problems and sin? God's grace is so unfathomable, so inconceivable, that we are continuously surprised by it. But Paul knew the gospel message. Paul knew the Lord Jesus Christ. This divine justice had no more claim against Paul. It had been satisfied by Jesus on the cross. And friends, as followers of Christ, we can claim the same because of the Lord Jesus. All of our sins have been atoned for. All of our sins have been paid for by the work of Jesus on the cross. And the reaction when Paul miraculously survives the snake bite is telling they considered him to be a god. How quickly their minds changed. The natives of Malta went from one extreme to the other. A typical human reaction, we find. Either he was terribly evil, this Paul was, or he was considered a god. In truth, Paul was neither a criminal deserving punishment nor a god, which is all the more reason why we must be cautious regarding what others think of us, either for good or for bad. So Paul stays for three months on Malta. He shares the gospel, he ministers to the people, and God heals people through the work of the Apostle Paul. And when winter is over and traveling was now safe again by sea, they board a ship and they head towards Rome. And this will bring us to the last segment that we will read uh, from the book of Acts on down in verse 26 of chapter 28. When they had appointed a day for him, for Paul, they came to him in his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their hearts, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, without hindrance. Paul finally makes his way to the greater central area of Rome, and he's given a day-long opportunity to speak about Jesus after his arrival. And in response to this remarkable day-long teaching from Paul, 
Some people believe and they trust Jesus. Others did not and disbelieved. You know, even the best teaching from the best apostle in the best circumstances could not persuade some people. And the great prophet Isaiah had much to say about the kingdom of God and the redemptive message which came from the Lord. And Paul often found comfort in quoting Isaiah, and he did it here. Essentially, Isaiah says in this passage from Isaiah 6, If you reject Jesus, you can hear, but never understand. You can see, but never perceive. Your heart is and will be hard, and your ears closed, and your eyes shut, because you don't really want to turn to God and be healed of your sin. And this is a message just as true today as it was when Isaiah first said these words and when Paul quoted it. Many people hear and reject simply because they don't want to turn to God and be healed of their sin. It isn't a matter of evidence. It isn't a lack of clarity or understanding. And it certainly isn't that there's a better alternative. Friends, many, many people choose not to believe because in their pride, they clench their fists toward God and refuse to surrender to Him and live a life pleasing to Him. The pleasures of sin, even though it is just for a season, are more appealing than an eternity of knowing Christ and glorifying Him forever. It's true, but it's sad, even tragic for many. You know, the work of David Guzik has been such a help and a blessing to me preparing these messages. And I love what he said regarding this passage. I want to quote him here. The preacher of the gospel really preaches two messages. To those who respond to the gospel with faith, he is a messenger of life. But to those who reject Jesus, the preacher adds to their condemnation. To the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other the aroma of life to life, as Paul would echo in 2 Corinthians 2.16. I want to close with some of these timeless takeaways. You know, I looked back on April 30th, we began this journey through the book of Acts, and you have entrusted me with the sacred blessing of pastoring this church, and I do view it as a very sacred thing. And our focus has been and continues to be, and I want it forever to be, the foundational commitment of the early church, the first church, that we find in Acts 2, specifically verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came on every soul. And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to revisit what we discussed at the very onset of this journey. And the first is this. We must continue to recognize God's presence and power in us to reach the world. Again, this great mystery that God would use you and I, fallible, fumbling humans, to be his ambassadors for his kingdom and the great gospel message is one of the most amazing revelations to ever reach our ears. And we should respond with unquenchable gratitude toward a holy God that invites us to such a sacred mission. Luke wrote that in his first account, the Gospel of Luke, that it was what Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication is here that in Acts, it is what Jesus continued to do and teach. The entire book of Acts has been about describing how Jesus was building his church 
and you see his divine presence behind every action as he executes the redeeming work of mankind. And God wants us to join him in that work, to learn his word, to learn to love one another, to learn to love the people of our community here in Rocky Top, to learn to know and love visitors to this church, and to learn to wait on the Lord and respond to his call with obedience. And we are called to obedience in simple everyday things. I've mentioned before that I love reading Oswald Chambers and his devotion entitled My Utmost for His Highest. And he frequently writes of our inclination as humans to want to do big, spectacular, noticeable things, even if we want to do them for God. Now, the will might be in the right place here. The heart might be in the right place, but this is not what God calls us to do. Oswald Chambers writes, We have to be exceptional in the ordinary things, to be holy in the mean streets among mean people, to be holy among mean streets and among mean people, and this is not learned in five minutes. We're not made for the mountains, for sunrises, for the other beautiful attractions in life. Those are simply intended to be moments of inspiration. He says we are made for the valley and the ordinary things of life, and that is where we have to prove our stamina and strength. You and I have the Holy Spirit of the living God within us, guiding us and using us to make, mark, and help other disciples mature. Secondly, we need to rely on God's power and promise to us. Now, what was this power? Well, you might think back early in the book of Acts that Jesus had told the early church that when he departed, the Holy Spirit would come to them. And I love to look at some of the Greek words that were used by the biblical writers and try to guess and determine what modern words were derived from these Greek words. And they use the word for power when talking about the Holy Spirit And they use it ten other times in the book of Acts, or ten times in the book of Acts, and it's the word dynamis. And it means power, strength, and might, and explosive power. And you might guess that it's related to another modern word that we use, dynamite. There's an explosive power to the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We have this power. And if we truly love God, we can't just hold on to it. We have to put it out there. We have to let it go as a natural expression of who we are because of Christ living in us. God works in us and through us. And may I say this, that we must just stop doing things for Jesus and let Jesus do things through us. Wherever we go, whatever we do, it must not be us living our life, but Christ living in us. Christ living in us. And I'm not playing games with words. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 2.20, that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There are three miracles in the Christian life. The first is the miracle of the new birth, when we are born again by the grace and mercy of God as we respond to his call and accept the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. There is the final miracle, either when we are resurrected at the end of all things or Jesus returns and we are immediately changed in the twinkling of an eye. But in the meantime, In between those two moments, there is the supernatural work that God works in our life now to be like Him and to be sanctified and to strive to be like Him. This is the promise of Scripture and the reality of the Christian faith. Third, we have to respond to His commission in us. 
Jesus asked the disciples to wait until they received the power of the Holy Spirit, which they did on the day of Pentecost. This was early in our study of the book of Acts. And he told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that becomes an outline for the book of Acts, a model for us to follow. Ground zero would be Jerusalem. Then it would expand to all Judea, then Samaria, then to the end of the earth. Like a stone dropped into a pond, the ripples would move ever farther outward. God said to be a witness, and we are to be witnesses as well, not merely to argue like lawyers about the Bible, but to share what we have witnessed Christ do in our own lives. We are to make disciples. You know, sometimes I'll hear of large Christian gatherings, and the news will be reported that there were many hundreds or even thousands of decisions for Christ. And that sounds so good, and in many ways it is, and I celebrate with that. I'm not, I'm not discounting it. But Jesus told us to make disciples, not decisions. And then we take these people, these disciples, and we help them grow and to mature them. That's the church, the purpose of the church, a large purpose of the church. And we'll continue to look at that as we grow, but we have to ask ourselves the questions, are we growing, are we maturing? And are then are we taking that to others and helping them to grow and mature? You know, our Jerusalem, our starting point is Rocky Top, Tennessee. God clearly wants us here, so we have to ask, how are we ministering to our local people? And as we continue to move forward, I hope that every single heart in this church burns with the desire to serve Jesus through this local group of believers, the church. We won't do all do the same things. God doesn't want us to do that. But we do have a, God, a divine command to reach the people for the kingdom of God. You know, Luke concludes Acts here on somewhat of a cliffhanger. For all of the details that we've had, for all of the huge epic storytelling, the book of Acts just sort of ends. We don't hear what Paul said to the Caesar. Extra-biblical sources indicate that Paul continued preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and even made it as far as Spain proclaiming the message of redemption. Paul, of course, took this time as he waited there and lived there to write much of what we call the New Testament, including divinely inspired letters to the Ephesians, Colossians, and Galatians. And near the end of his life, Paul wrote to his faithful companion, friend, and a dear young man he mentored, Timothy. He said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul would be martyred for his faith in Christ. And Acts ends with a to-be-continued. Luke was part one. Acts was part two. And the church is now part three. You and I are part of this great sequel, this continuing story. There is no end to this story because the history of the church continues on and on through the centuries. Trusting in Jesus, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Father, the Word of God will continue to spread without hindrance and continue to change lives for the glory of God. The book of Acts is really a never-ending story and one that God invites you and I to be a part of. 
Pray with me, if you will, friends. Heavenly Father, in the Westminster Catechism, there's an answer to an important question. What is the chief end of man? What is our ultimate purpose that nothing else can match or surpass? And the answer that is given is that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our dear God, First Baptist is in a season of revitalization, and we know it's a long process, one that will sometimes take one step forward and two steps back. But you are the one who promises to be with your church. And we ask that you will strengthen your church and grow your church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Help us to be faithful to the true model and mission of the church. Help us to be obedient to you and you alone. And dear Jesus, please bless First Baptist Church. Bless your people. And may many in Rocky Top have soft hearts to receive the gospel and be saved. Be born again by the Holy Spirit of the living God as we seek to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.